Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that and meet me over in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to do another one-off message today, and next week we'll start the book of Acts. But I want to talk a little bit about community and a couple other things here that I feel like will help us get the year started off well. So Hebrews chapter 10, it's toward the back of your Bible if you need some help getting there. Florence Chadwick was a really confident woman. You couldn't tell her nothing. Kind of like my nine-year-old little girl, anything that you tell her, she knows better. She'll start mimicking that Nike song, right? Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Anybody have a kid like that? Yeah, that was Florence. Florence was going to achieve the impossible. Matter of fact, I, I have a lot of admiration for her because I kind of feel like that's my life in a lot of ways. Is I, I feel like if you tell me I can't, I'm going to. Well, she was the first woman to ever swim the English Channel back and forth. And in 1952, she decided that she was going to be the first person to swim from Catalina Island to San Diego. She swam through those cold, shark-infested waters for 15 hours, 15 hours, and stopped just one mile short, just one mile short. When the reporters asked her what happened, here's what she said, is all I could see was fog. All I could see was fog. If I could see the shoreline, I'm sure I would have made it, but I couldn't see through the fog. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like everything in life just seems to be foggy, right? Like, I wish I could make it beyond this moment, but I just can't see what's right in front of me. See, the reality is, is if you can't see the destination, you tend to get lost along the way. Biblical confidence, what I'm going to show you today, is a vision for the future that actually allows you to see the destination. And for many of us, for many of us, we fall short not because we don't have the grit or the, the umption. It's because we can't see the future. We can't see beyond the fog. Maybe right now, maybe right now the future just seems cloudy to you. You, you haven't settled in yet. You, you, know, you know that you want to go somewhere, but if, if you're honest, like, I don't know about you. I've got four kids, and sometimes I look at culture, and I'm like, I don't know if I can see past the fog. Like, I don't know what this world is going to hold for my kids. Now, the reality is, is every generation since the beginning of time has said that, and we've all turned out okay, so let me just tell you, your kids are going to be fine. But that's how we feel. Maybe it's your marriage. For some of you, your marriage looks really, really good, but you know the truth. It's like the Pleasantville that we all live in, isn't it? Like everything looks good on the outside, but deep down, you know you can't fake it anymore. And there's so much on the line. The fog, it's dense. And you just wish you could see past the haziness of tomorrow to keep going. And listen, for some of you, oh, for some of you, it's your Christianity. Like, like you have good theology. You're sitting in the seat right now, and, and you know that Jesus loves you because you've heard the old songs. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's not the problem. You wonder, though, do you love Jesus? Or is he even proud of you? Because he sees the secret things in your life, the things that nobody else sees, so the fog is settling in, and you wonder, you wonder, how does he feel about me? Is he pleased with me? See, for many of us, there's a lot of fogginess, and here's what I know is if you don't know the destination, you're going to stop just a mile short. So let me encourage you with God's word today. Pick me up in verse 19, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Listen to what it says. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bloods washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." A couple quick observations for you if you want to do good Bible study is you need, to, you need to ask some questions along the way. We're jumping into the middle of a passage, so we don't have the context. So like I used to tell my youth group a long time ago, you should start with the therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? That's a good Bible study question. I'm going to get to that in a second, but let's look at the second line, that brothers. Brothers. By the way, that includes sisters too. He's not being sexist. It's just an all-inclusive way of saying Christians. Here, that's important because he's talking to the church. Now check this out. Something is going on here that he wants you to see that will create confidence for you to enter into an entirely new way of living, to lift the fog so that you can see the destination. That's the big idea, by the way, that we're going to explore today is this, is that the blood of Jesus has created an entirely new way of living for you, and that changes everything. It's your destination. See, the point of the Christian life is not that you would pray a prayer and go to heaven one day. You, you got to understand this. That is, that is one of the greatest myths and fallacies that you'll ever see. That's not the point of the Christian life. The point of the Christian life is that you would be an entirely new kind of person. And that new kind of person you have access to right now. I, I love, maybe my favorite text in scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anybody is in Christ, they are a new creation. Not that you will be a new creation, but you are a new creation. Therefore, the old has passed away and the new has come. The promise that Jesus gives you by what he has done, and we're going to explore that in a second, is that you can actually have a new identity now. See, Jesus lets you see the shoreline so that you can complete the race. Matter of fact, if you, if you actually fast forward two chapters to chapter 12, verse 1, it's the concluding thought of the entire passage here. Here's what it says. Therefore, that's another, another concluding statement. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance. You see that? Keep going. Run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is something about Jesus that gives you confidence to keep running this race in life. Something about what he did that changes everything. Y'all, this is so important. Listen, if you're looking for anything to fulfill you but Jesus, I'm telling you at the end of the day, it will crush you. Because everything in this life overpromises and underdelivers. Matter of fact, I was reading an article just yesterday that I sent to our elders that we had this year in America the highest suicide rates ever. 49,000 people committed suicide this year in America. And y'all, we have more freedom, we have more technology. You have greater access to whatever sexuality you want. And all it's doing is showing you that if your identity is in anything other than Jesus, it does not work. 
So there's three things that he says in this passage, back to Hebrews 10, that will help you to have the shoreline. I want to explore them. This is a little more systematic than I normally do, but here they are. Number one, he says, draw near. Number two, he says, hold fast to our beliefs. And then number three, he says, encourage one another. So I want to take them one at a time and walk through them, because if you grab these three things, it will help you see the shoreline. Draw near. Draw near is the first one. See, back before Jesus, you have to understand this, the writer of Hebrews, he's trying to show you how access to God works, and back before Jesus, you could not draw near to God. Like, no matter what you wanted to do, there was a separation between you and God. It'd be like tissue paper dropping on the surface of the sun would happen if you ever even saw God's face. See, God was so holy that if you looked into his eyes, it would crush you. So what would happen is once a year, a great high priest, he would enter into this place called the Holy of Holies on a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and he would go and he'd sacrifice a bunch of animals so that you could actually have access to God. Think about how crazy that is. Just imagine in your mind how weird it would be to show up at City Church, and that's what we did once a year. That's what they had to do, and this guy, he walked behind this curtain so that you could have access, and yet now the scriptures say you don't have to do that anymore. Matter of fact, when Jesus died, it said the curtain was split in two because that curtain is God himself. It was Jesus' body fully broken so that you could have access to him. See, see, Jesus wants you to recognize something so significant here. He is the great high priest that entered into the holiest of places to do what you never could do. He went behind the curtain. He sacrificed not an animal, but he sacrificed himself so that you could have access to God. Like, did you know that in the, in the Old Testament, one of the cool things that happened is um, the, the high priest would go into this holy of holies and he'd be wearing on his chest the 12 tribes of Israel to show you that he was representing the entire church. And Jesus doesn't do that. He goes in to this place wearing your name on his chest and on his heart so that you could enter in and be close to God forever. So you can draw near. You can draw near because Jesus has made access to God on your behalf. He is your great advocate and he is your great high priest. In order for God, you have to understand this, and it takes a little bit of time to explain. In order for God to be God, in order for God to be good, well, there, there had to be punishment for our rebellion. But most people in our Western 2023 context have no grasp of this. But think about it like this. If you've ever experienced true injustice in your life, then you want a God who cares about the evil of this world and is going to take care of it one day. You don't want a God that just has an easy believism that just says, believe whatever you want. No, you have a God who had to satisfy his wrath so that you can come into his presence. Now, the beautiful thing is, and you have to understand this, the beautiful thing is that Jesus himself would become the way that you could do it. God says, I'm not gonna make you do it. I'll do it for you. I'll stand in your place. So that the next time the evils of this world happen, you have to understand that one day I'm going to make all the sad things become untrue. I'm telling you, this easy believism stuff that just tells you that God will forgive you, it might sound good if you're in the Western, you know, middle class of America, but it does not work if you're truly suffering. So what does Jesus do? He handles both his love and his justice at the cross. And now for all of eternity, you can enter into his presence because of what he has done. And you know that this has to be this way, deep down. I love this. A.W. Tozer once said, if you think you're a good person, imagine if somebody could put a tape recorder in your heart for just one day and play back everything that you thought that day. 
right? Kelsey's like, no way. <laughs> You're smart enough not to let it out, but you know deep down inside that even your thoughts are corrupt. So the reality is, is you need a pure heart. You need something deeper than what this world has to offer you. And, and, and what, maybe what's been exposed more than anything today is the fact that just because you can doesn't mean it satisfies, right? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And how many people do you know that is exploring everything right now just to get to the end of themselves and they're crushed? <laughs> Jesus offers you something more. So what does he do is he gives you a pure heart. And then I love this. He says he washed you. That's a picture of baptism. It's this external confirmation to an internal change. So because Jesus went in, you can enter in, and now you can actually have an identity that's secure so that you can see the finish line. See, the gospel is this. You're accepted because of what Jesus did, not because of what you do. And y'all, that gives you extreme confidence. Here's what it means. It means that every single time that God sees you, he does not see your filth or anything you've ever done, he sees Christ's righteousness, which means that no matter what you do, you can never drive God away from you. And you know, this changed my reality when I figured this out for the first time. God, like a good father, doesn't push his kids away whenever they get in trouble. I don't know about you. Maybe that's the kind of dad you are. It's not the kind of dad I am. When my kids are at their worst, that's when I bring them in the closest. And that's what God does for you too. But he can do that because Jesus drew near in your place. And that gives you confidence. I love the way Paul said it in Romans chapter 8. Listen to this. It's a long passage, but let me just read it over you. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he is the one who raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for ours are for your sake? We are being killed all the day long. We are being regarded as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. Let that resonate for just a second. Now back to that word, therefore. That word, therefore, is there because the writer, the writer wants to make a point that you can't live off of this temporary sacrifice. You needed a, a greater sacrifice. So again, let me, let me walk you through some of this to give you some context. Look back at verse 1 in chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, that means that the law, these rules, they don't work. Shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. He's basically saying this stuff doesn't work. The whole system's broken. You need something better. So he goes on in verse 11, and he says it this way. And every high priest, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For every single offering he has perfected, that's that same word, for all time, those who are being sanctified. Y'all, if you don't know this, one day Jesus is going to take your enemies and he's going to plop his feet right on top of them. Everything sad will become untrue. See, the single sacrifice that Jesus made was himself, and it satisfied all the sacrifices. Y'all, I'm telling you, this, this is where you get confidence in the world, that the truly innocent one, that Jesus himself would put on flesh. Literally, the Bible says he incarnated himself. He became your sacrifice. Think about how amazing God is. Logically, the only way The only way that you should ever be able to come into the presence of God and have a relationship with him is, number one, if you're perfect. Or number two is if you satisfied the punishment of God. And what does God do is in Christ, he makes you perfect by satisfying it for you. See, it's the greatest act of love and justice that the world has ever seen that God himself would satisfy his own justice. And here's how he did it. He made perfect. He he perfected. He was sinless. He died in your place. See, that means that he was the only truly innocent one that could actually stand in the gap for you. So now, like the Israelites experienced, God can pass over your sins and let you enter into a relationship with him so you can draw near, you can have confidence. God will never reject you. You will be satisfied in him. Don't you see that you can actually have a relationship with your creator because of Jesus and you can have full assurance? Like Joby Martin, pastor says, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Or Tim Keller, if the resurrection is true and it is, then what do you have to be afraid of? See, I'm telling you, Jesus proved his love for you at the cross and his power over death at the resurrection. Y'all, I'm convinced I'm convinced that many of the world's greatest problems can actually be boiled down to the fact that we don't truly believe the gospel. Because if you truly believe the gospel, that Jesus really did what he said that he did, then you really have nothing to fear. It's like the fog gets lifted and you get to see the finish line that one day when you take your last breath, you're going to be in eternity in perfect relationship with the creator, the way it was always supposed to be. What you need more than anything, what I need more than anything is to return to the gospel, to continue to look to what Jesus has done, to see that he has already done everything necessary to save me. See, when God sees you, I'm just telling you, he sees Christ and he is pleased with you. That's why we say that you can boil down the gospel to these four words, Jesus in my place. So draw near. When things get tough, when you seem like you're close, but you want to fail, the idea is just draw near. Go back to what you already know to be true. And then here's number two, hold fast. Draw near and hold fast. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises is faithful. See, you don't just draw near. You got to maintain or you got to hold fast. You got to hold on to you know, hold on to your faith. See, what's our hope? Again, it's the gospel. So you got to hold on to this thing. The, the fact that God is faithful is, is what you base your hope on, that he can never be faithless. Even when you are faithless, he remains faithful. 
Yo, God didn't just say that he was going to do something. He did something. You realize that, right? He didn't just say, one day I'm going to do this. He did something. And that's our hope. Now, listen. All this sounds really good. But what about whenever you actually have to put it into action? You know, some of you know this. Many of you don't. Last week, my brother, my estranged brother, um, he OD'd. And it was a pretty bad situation. Uh, I didn't know if he was going to live. Haven't seen him in 28 years. Um, he's addicted to heroin. And, and y'all, the range of emotions of different things that you deal with in that moment, the regrets of like not knowing him, the I wish I could have done more, the I hate that my family went through this. You, you, know, you, you know what I'm saying? I, I, it'd be hard to even explain all the ranges of emotion there. And yet I'm just telling you, the only confidence I had was reminding myself of the gospel. You see, it's real easy to say this stuff when life is easy, but when life gets hard, to remind yourself that Jesus, you really did do what you said that you did changes everything. To go back to what you know to be true, to, to lean into this holding fast, holding fast to this promise, even whenever it doesn't make sense that Jesus, you loved us, and look, you're grieved by this world. You, you realize that, right? God did something because this world is broken. And one day he's going to come back and he's going to redeem that which is broken. See, it's easy to say this stuff when life is easy, but you need a resource that is strong enough to hold you when life gets hard, when you get at the 15th hour, whenever the fog settles in, and you don't know if you can keep going, you have to remind yourself of what's true. Don't waver from your confession, because Jesus didn't waver from his commitment to you. Robert McEachern said this, live near to God so that all things will appear little in comparison to eternal realities. Isn't that true? The closer I am to Jesus, the less those things tend to matter. Now, Tim Keller, he, he's helped me a lot in a lot of different things, but here's how he said it. He said, the gospel is not just the diving board into Christianity. It's the pool that you go deeper and deeper into. Here's what he says. Stop being a grace graduate. You don't move beyond a deeper theology. The deepest theology is going back and holding on to the things that you already know to be true. John O'Donohue, listen to what he says, relationships suffer immense numbing through the mechanism of familiarization. Isn't that true? Do you know why most marriages fall apart? You take each other for granted, right? The, the beautiful person that's sitting right next to you over time simply becomes normal. You become too familiarized with them. And then you start to take them for granted. Y'all, cultural Christianity has created the same exact problems. Our familiarization with Christianity has made us stop being in awe of it. When was the last time you were wowed by the gospel? Or is it just normal to you? Some of us have lost our ability to actually see God for who he is because we're just too familiar with him. G.K. Chesterton, the, the great um, philosopher, said that the problem, the problem with most of the world is that we've taken the extraordinary and we've made it ordinary. Like we look at a chicken and an egg and we feel like it's just supposed to be that way. The sky's blue because it's supposed to be that way. No, it's that way because God is incredible. Uh, this, this kid here grew up in Florida. I went off to school in Chicago and I can remember like yesterday, that very first snow was magical. Like I loved it. When it didn't stop snowing by April, I wanted to pull the hair out of my head and leave as quickly as I could. My family loves the beach. I hate the beach. 
I grew up right by the beach. I can't think of anything worse than sitting on the beach, becoming a lobster, and getting dirty in the sand. I hate it. I'd rather do anything else in the world. But the reality is, is it's because I'm familiar with it. It's because it's just normal. See, the reality is, is when you make the magical just familiar, you start, you start to take it for granted, and we do that with God. And when we do that with God, what ends up happening is we end up losing ourselves in all of our circumstances, and we don't hold on to the truth. Y'all, an all-powerful God loved you so much that he stepped off of his throne in heaven to rescue you. When was the last time you were amazed by that? Like my kids when I explained it to them. They're in awe of it. He didn't need to do this. He did it because he loved you. You don't deserve his grace, but you have it and he's pleased with you. Listen, if you want to have saving faith and enduring faith, you have to have a faith that draws near to God continually and maintains the simple things of your faith. Here's number three. Encourage one another. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That word stir up, it's a strange word. It actually, it, it means to provoke. It, it's, it's only used in the positive sense in the Bible right here. Every other time it's used, it's actually in the negative. The other time you see it is when Paul and Barnabas are fighting about uh, John Mark, and they're provoked to anger. They're stirred up in rage over this. And yet, here's what the writer of Hebrews says, is we should stir up or provoke faith in one another. When was the last time you thought about how to stir up faith in the people around you? When was the last time you thought about how do you provoke a certain thing, stoke the fire in the people around you so that they can actually draw closer to God? See, there, again, there are three things in this Christian life. I'm telling you, if you will do these three things and they're not that difficult, you will find joy in this life. If you'll draw near to God regularly, if you'll hold fast to the gospel, and if you'll live in community. And yet, those tend to be the three things that we do the least. You know, that's why church is so vital. Uh, we say it like this, Sunday around here, Sunday isn't an event you attend, it's a community you belong to. The reason why we need each other in here is because we need encouragement. We, we need to be around each other, right? I mean, the essential ingredient of, of a life-giving church is that you actually show up. Like the entire passage is pointing to this idea that Christianity is a team sport, not an individual sport. You, you might have missed the, 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 the wordings that it says, but you see it, it says, let us, let us. That's, that's, that's a plural language, our brothers and sisters. Every single command in here is pointing to the fact that, that we need one another. You might have a personal relationship with Jesus, but your relationship is never personal. Every single thing in the Bible points to the fact that we need one another. Listen, I, I know it's true. I know it's true. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You also don't have to go home to be married. But try that out and let me know how it goes. I'm just telling you. Telling you. We need one another. It's been a while since I've done this illustration. It might be my favorite, and a lot of you are new, so I'm going to go for it. If you've heard it a million times, it's a good one, so keep on. Um, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called Four Loves. And in it, he talks about the deepest form of love. 
He talks about this agape love. And, and the way he illustrates it, he illustrates it by talking about three of his friends, J.R.R. Tolkien, him, and a guy named Charles. Now, Charles and Tolkien uh, and, and Lewis would meet together regularly at this pub. And if you're Baptist, they drink sweet tea. Uh, and they would do this in, in Oxford every year. And then one day, Tolkien died. And Lewis says, I found out the deepest form of love was communal love because whenever, Lewis, whenever Tolkien died, I didn't just lose my friend. I lost a part of myself and I lost a part of Charles because something unique happens when we're all together in community. He said, we drew out aspects of one another that's only possible when we're together. Then he goes on and he says this, and that's why the greatest form of love is communal love. Listen if you have an individual relationship with Jesus, and you do, and I have an individual relationship with Jesus, well, the only way that I actually get to see a full and complete picture of Jesus is with you. Because when we're together, we draw out in one another these individual aspects of our relationship with Jesus, and I need you to see God fully. Don't you get that? Like, I need you and you need me if I can take my individual relationship and your individual relationship in this communal gathering to get a fuller and complete picture of who we are and who God is. We need one another. That's why God has designed us for this. You know, the church, the church works this way. Like, you might have your individual relationship with God, but we have something different together. When I come in here every single week, I am so encouraged by you. I'm encouraged by the way that I get to see the joy on your faces and the way you're experiencing God and, and, and the things that you tell me about your relationship. And I know some of the crazy, difficult stuff that you're going through. And yet there's nowhere else in the world I'd rather be but here. Like, you're not gonna get that online. I, I, look, I know that there's great technology and amazing ability to watch a sermon online, but that's not church. And it's not church because online, you don't get to experience God together. We need to be in the room in order to encourage one another in our faith journey that God has called us to be on. Like you were made for community, and the way that you live and interact in community actually has the ability to powerfully change this world as you encourage one another. Way back, way back in the first century, um, Tertullian, uh, he, he wrote this article about the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, they were kind of getting a little salty that Christianity was taking off like it was. So they, they brought in some Roman guards into a church and they said, I want you to explore what makes them different. Why, why do they have what they have? And listen to what he says. Tertullian, he writes this article about what's going on here. And he, here's what he says. He says, these Christians, the, the guard said, they're some strange people. Y'all, you just need to own it. We're some strange people. It's true. But listen to what he says. He says they worship a guy named Jesus, and they believe that he's real and that he can come back anytime. And then he ended his report by saying this, oh, how they love him and how they love one another. What made them different? How they loved him and how they loved one another. For centuries, for centuries, that's what the church was known for. Dustin gave me a book a couple of years ago on called The Early Ferment of, or something ferment of the church. It was real impactful. Um, and the idea was, is the early church didn't have any evangelistic strategy at all. All they did was they loved one another and they loved each other and they loved their community and the gospel took off. Rodney Stark, the great historian, says the same exact thing. The way that we care for one another, it makes a difference. Isn't that what Jesus said? You remember this? They will know you're my disciples by how you 
love one another. Like, I don't know about you, but this is the most powerful thing on the entire planet is when you encourage one another and when you love one another. Did you realize, do you realize that we don't, we don't live in a world that, that, that is over-encouraged, right? People aren't walking around with their encouragement tanks filled up. They're not sitting here being like, yo, man, if you tell me I'm amazing one more time, I'm telling you, 46 people have already told me that, like, I get it. No, people are discouraged. That's why 49,000 people committed suicide this year. People are hurting. Eugene Peterson said that our words have a way of shaping us, that, that words create worlds, that when God spoke, he spoke words, and worlds came into existence, and yet you can do the same exact thing. If all you ever hear is, you always do that, or you're just a screw up, you begin to live in this reality that shapes who you are, and yet on the other end of that, if you tell people that you're greater than your greatest failure and the things that somebody told you, do you realize how much you can change their world? Your identity is not the scars that you have. Your identity is the scars that Jesus had. And you have to understand that what we need often is just to tell one another how amazing they are because they're not lacking, or they are lacking in people telling them that. Imagine how powerful a word of encouragement could be if you just call that out what you see in other people. Here, here's a practical way of saying it. Here's how we say it around here. You celebrate to replicate. What you celebrate in other people eventually is what replicates out of them. If you celebrate the good that you see in people, what ends up happening is they end up living out of the good that you call out in them. Rick Warren, you know, he, he created this ministry called Celebrate Recovery. If you didn't know this, Celebrate Recovery and AA are the same exact thing. He just said that AA is so negative. He's like, our words are so powerful that I don't want you people to live in this negativity, so let's call it something better. Let me just ask you, when was the last time that you simply encouraged someone? Mark Batterson, um, author, I just read his book not long ago. He wrote a book called Please, Sorry, and Thanks. He says they're the three most powerful words on the planet, and they seem to be the ones that we never use. Y'all, they're powerful because they can create worlds in, type, in people. Think about it. Think about what would happen if you use those three words regularly. If you just told people, please. Man, what would it look like if you simply apologize in the moments that you did something wrong? Or just said thanks. Like, thanks for being here today. You, you can be anywhere else you ever want to be, and you chose to be here. I just want you to know I'm really grateful for that. I'm telling you, an encouraging word can revive a life back into someone. And when you're here, and when you decide to intentionally encourage the people around you, you begin to reshape their world in the most amazing ways. What we do around here is so much greater than me doing a pep talk for 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. You are practicing eternity. You are encouraging one another. You're serving each other, and you're making a difference. So there's two primary ways at City Church that we want to help you to live out this, encourage one another regularly. First one, Sunday morning. Second one, small groups. Both of those are so vital to who we are. Matter of fact, right after this gathering, we're gonna help you in the kids' lobby get connected to a small group because we think that they matter that much. Our groups are the relationships that take us from instruction to transformation. They take the relationship from something you learn to something you do together, and they become the community that we are. See, almost every single life change story that I've seen at City Church has happened in a small group or happened through a small group. 
Like, I can't think of a better way for you to use the two hours of your life every week other than meet together regularly to encourage one another and to learn God's word. If you want to grow at City Church, if you want to grow in the Christian life, I think you got to do those two things. You got to be committed to this thing that we do and be committed to relationships around us. Check out verse 24 one more time. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. When was the last time you considered how to stir up love and good works in somebody around you to make them a better person? Can I give you four practical, really quick ways that you can do that around here? Number one is this, bless them. It's real simple. Everybody loves to be blessed and nobody wants to ask for a blessing, right? So here's the reality. People have told us like, hey, we'd love to make you a meal. Just don't even ask, just show up. Because I don't know about you, we're just gonna, all of us, we're gonna say, ah, don't do that. Like, we're good. Bless people. Don't, don't even ask for permission. There's nothing that will stir up love and blessing and good works in somebody other than that. Surprise them with a meal. Watch their kids. You know, watch their kids so their mom can get out for just a little bit or, or, or do something different. When, when we first moved into our neighborhood, the one thing we did is we made every single neighbor a batch of cookies and introduced ourselves. And that sparked a relationship that's still going on today. And all we did was make some dang cookies from Publix. I'm telling you, but it stirred up loving good works because people felt thought for and encouraged. Here's number two, text people. I say text you because nobody likes to answer their phone anymore. We get that, right? What if you took two minutes to intentionally send somebody an encouraging text? Like, hey, I was just thinking about you today. I, I want you to know that I care about you. What if you send somebody a scripture? Hey, I just, God's been working on my heart with this, and I wanted to share it with you. Maybe you prayed for them. Y'all, sometimes the most encouraging thing is somebody actually writes out the prayer and sends it to me in a text message. And, and in those moments, like they go much further than you would ever imagine. Maybe you just, you just say you're thinking about them and you're grateful for them. Look, when people in a, are in a really dark place, they, they tend to isolate. When that happens, reach out. Reach out. They might tell you they don't want you to, but they really do. Here's number three, hang with people. So, Time might be the most valuable commodity we have, especially here. It's more valuable to us than money. What if you scheduled a little bit of time to just hang out with the people around you? And when you hung out with them, ask curious questions. You ever do that? You ever go to lunch with people and just ask them a bunch of curious questions? Everyone likes to talk about themselves. Nobody ever gets the opportunity to do it. When you ask people curious questions, you tend to make them feel special. Matter of fact, Winston Churchill's mom, she tells a story and she says, in back-to-back -back days, I got to have dinner with the prime minister of England, the, the current one and the, the previous one. And here's what she said, which I found so fascinating. She said, whenever I hung out with William Gladstone, which was that prime minister, she said, I thought he was the smartest guy in the room. Whenever I hung out with the other guy, he made me feel like I was the smartest person in the room. Think about the power of that statement. When you focus on the people around you, you make them feel loved. Look, they're both prime minister of England. I'm sure they're both in incredibly intelligent. But they made, that person made them feel amazing. See, the easiest way you can do this is just hang out with people. You know, encourage people, talk about them, intersect your life with the things you're already doing and do it with intentionality and tell the people around them how much you care. Here's number four. Last one, invest in people. 
Here's what I know is everybody in this room has a unique skill that they can pass on to somebody else. Everybody in this room does. And you, if you took out the time to intentionally invest in the people around you, you would make a huge difference. Like maybe, maybe you teach somebody how to write a resume. Or maybe you, you just connect people into your networks because we all know that the only way you're getting a job anymore is if you know somebody, right? What if you did a Bible study or a monthly Zoom call with people? Here, here's the deal. True love is more than action and it's more than emotion. It's doing things together. It's taking time to invest in the people around you. Like you don't always feel like loving people, right? But the most loving thing you can do is be committed to showing and giving what you have away into the people around you. And that's how you stir up and you provoke these loves. You know, those are four simple, easy things. But the reality is this. We all need encouragement. We all need to lean into this thing. Like we all need to be provoked. Because here's the reality. When the fog comes and it starts to settle in, you can't see beyond yourself. You can't see your destination. But do you know how powerful it is when somebody can call those things out in you? When they can stir those things up in you? It's like, if I can remind you of this, Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight Yo, you are surrounded by people who are running this race with you and every sin that clings so closely and let us run our race with endurance. Looking to Jesus, see it, there it is. You gotta get your eyes off your circumstances and onto your savior. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Do you know what the joy that was set before Jesus is? You, you. telling you. You need one another. You need to stir up in one another love and good works. As long as you try to do this on your own, it'll never work. But if you'll look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, if you'll encourage one another, then be reminded of this thing called the gospel continually. Something powerful will begin to shape the foundation of your life in a way that will help you get beyond the last mile and finish well. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for these people. God, thank you for your love and your grace, for your sustaining power over our lives. Lord, I pray that you would bless them. Pray that you would help us to walk humbly with you, to stir up each other to love and good works, and help us to worship you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.